Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. In today's episode, I'll be bringing you the audio from a recent impressions vlog where I discussed PAX Premier 2nd Edition, Rosetta, and The King's Dilemma. Now, if you are not interested in all of those games, then you can go to the description of this podcast to find timestamps for the games that you do want to listen to. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support coming in through the Patreon campaign. Now, you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. and if you enjoy listening to these vlogs instead of watching them, then I do hope you would consider supporting it. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. All right, let's now start talking about games, and the first one for today is PAX Premier 2nd Edition. Now, this is a game that I have been hearing about for years, and I've seen lots of photos of it. It's a very attractive-looking game. You have a cloth map in the middle of the table with these big, colorful, chunky blocks that you put down onto the map. Um, now, beyond that, I knew that it was a card game that had uh, the British, the Russians, and the Afghani people all warring against each other, and I didn't know too much more than that. Um, now, I've been kind of curious to try it for a long time because... So many people talk about it so highly, and I was able to have an opportunity to do that earlier this week. In fact, at this point, I have now played the game twice. I played it Monday night as well as Wednesday night. Uh, so let's talk very briefly about what's going on in this game before I discuss my impressions. Uh, there is a lot going on in this game, and it's interesting because all of the rules are very simple, but there are quite a few rules, and it seems like it's easy to trip up on them. Uh, now, mechanically, what you're doing in this game is on your turn, you just take two actions, and at the start, your only options are buy a card or play a card that you already have. Uh, so that seems pretty simple. And then when you go to buy a card, that's also simple. The only currency in the game is money, and you spend it on a market. And if you want to take the leftmost card, well, it's free. And if you want to take any of the other cards, you have to put one coin down onto each one that you skip over. Uh, this is a mechanic that is uh, in many games, like uh, Century, Spice Road, and Small World as well. In fact, when this was taught, um, the uh, person teaching just said, uh, it uses Small World uh, money mechanics and we just moved on and we all knew exactly what they meant. So uh, you buy these cards into your hand and then you play them and you take those two actions and then your turn is done. Uh, now, obviously, the game is a lot more complex than that. And uh, you can also spend actions on your turn to activate the cards in front of you. So those cards do a wide variety of things. But like I said, one of them involves giving you extra action options, like uh, being able to tax money from the board or from other people. Uh, it also might let you move units on the map or attack with various units on the map or spies. Uh, now, again, I'm not going to go into all these details, but the general vibe of this game is each player is always aligned with one of the three factions I mentioned earlier, either the British, the Russians, or the Afghani people. Uh, now, your allegiance will shift whenever you take something that is of a different allegiance. So that means if I am currently allied with the British and I take a Russian card and then play it, the moment I play it down, I'm no longer allied with the British because they're like, hey, what's up with that Russian guy over there? So suddenly you have to change your allegiance and lose everything associated with the British. So that might be cards that are played in front of you. It might be prizes and gifts that you've picked up along the way. And um, that can be a very big shift overall. Now, what you're trying to do in this game is get the most points by the end. <laughs> That's a pretty standard thing. But the way it works is as you play through the game, there are four dominance checks. Uh, when these cards are purchased from the card row, they're in the same deck as the rest of the cards, you will then look out to the map and see if there is dominance. Now, this is simple. You just count up all of the blocks of each of the three different colors, and then you see if any one set is more than four, uh, more than any of the rest. Um, if that's the case, then there is dominance. So that means, to a certain degree, it doesn't really matter where the troops are on the map. So the map does have a few different regions, but you're just counting everything. Now, if that's... Uh, if 
that is the case, then only the players allied with the dominating force is, are going to be able to score points, and they will get more points if they have more stuff to show they are a better ally. So uh, more uh, patriots, more gifts, more prizes, and that kind of thing. Now, if that's not the case, let's say that uh, the various blocks on the board are uh, less than four, and uh, that means everybody's warring a lot more, then in that case, you don't check what your allegiance is. Instead, you look down to see how many tokens you have put out onto the board, as well as other people's cards as spies, as well as um, your own area as uh, gifts. And again, I'm trying not to go into the specifics. So in this case, you just give the most points to the player who has the most of these tokens deployed. So what that means is when you score, it's going to be all about your allegiance or it's going to be all about your presence. And it really depends on how many blocks are on the map to make that happen. Um, now, there's a lot more going on to this game, but I'd like to start talking about my impressions. Uh, I was taught this game on Monday night and I played a three-player game then. And then um, when that game was over, um, I was thinking about it and I thought it was interesting. I, I had some maybe problems with it at that point, but then last night, uh, Wednesday night it was, um, everyone was back online and there was another person who actually learned the rules already. So we decided to play a four-player game because we were all intrigued to try it again. Um, now it was a first, second, and third game of Pax Bamir uh, for the variety of people around the table. And when the dust settled at the end of the second game, just about all of us decided it's not really our thing. Um, one of the four players w was quite into it, and they said they would actively like to play it again. But the rest of us, me included, well, we feel like the game is a fascinating experience, but it's very hard to do well in this game, and it's also very hard to be strategic in this game as a newer player. Um, it's very possible that there are people who are super experienced with Pax Premier 2nd Edition uh, who are yelling at the screen telling me I'm totally wrong, but as a new player who has played this game twice, it seemed like on my turns, I was just trying to do things that seemed kind of good in this moment, but the uh, tide of the game and uh, how things are going to score can just flip on a dime. Uh, for instance, in our first game, it was a three-player game, and <laughs> the game ended on a card flip that gave the win to somebody who was not expecting it. Uh, now, what happened was one player, the player to my right, decided to buy the third-to-last dominance card. Um, so they bought it because they were currently had the most stuff and um, their ally was dominating. So that gave them five points, which is a lot in this game. Uh, there was no reason for them not to buy this card. They absolutely should have done it. We all agreed they would have done it. So they did that. And the thing is, whenever a dominance happens, whenever a side has four or more of their tokens than any of the others, then you actually clear off all of the colored tokens from the map. Uh, you keep the player tokens on the map, but not the different uh, Afghani, Russian, and British tokens. So that means the dominance happened, all of the blocks were cleared off, and then between their turn and my turn, we flipped up the next card, and it happened to be the fourth and final dominance card. So at this moment, there are no blocks on the map at all, and the game did not end in that moment, but it was now my turn, and I sat there for a couple minutes silently, and then for a few more minutes discussing with uh, my opponents around the table, because I could not see a way that the person to my left would not win no matter what I did. Um, there was just no actions available to me on the card market or the actions present in front of me that would have any impact on the ending score. I was going to get second place uh, no matter what I did, and that person was going to win. And up until that card flipped, the person who just initiated the dominance was seeming to be in a, a really good spot to win. And the reason for that is because the final dominance scores double. So that can kind of let you catch back up, but it also means that <laughs> people could just launch ahead and win the game. And it was a very strange experience. Uh, the game ended and we kind of discussed it. And we, we enjoyed the experience overall, but we all felt a little bit weird. Like it was kind of strange that somebody made an obviously very good play. And then based off of a card flip, they lost instead of being in the dominant position that they were at. Uh, well, 
Fast forward to last night, we played a four-player game. And in this game, when you when the dominoes cards come out onto the row, players can buy them. Uh, now, if they don't buy them, they slide down into the point where they just happen automatically. But if people stall out on buying dominance cards for too long and a second one hits the market, then they immediately are both discarded and a dominance happens immediately. Now, this happened in the uh, third slash fourth dominance of the game in our play last night. Um, now, it didn't happen because we were stalling out on the previous one. There was this big drought in the middle of the game um, between the second and third dominance. And then suddenly we finally saw the third one. Another turn happened that slid down. And then the turn after that, the last dominance card came out. So in that moment, both of those were discarded. The final dominance happened. And the person who is in last place suddenly won and the game was over. Um, just like that. <laughs> I mean, it really seemed like we were going to have at least one or two more turns. And the person who ended up winning did not feel ownership on that victory. They just kind of happened to be in a situation to win in that moment. In fact, on my turn, um, if I had done something slightly different, then I would have randomly won the game. I mean, if I'd done something slightly different, it maybe would have put me into a better position overall. But it just goes to show that my two plays of this game so far, the game ended and nobody felt bummed about losing and nobody felt awesome about winning. It was kind of like, okay, well, the game's over. And I, I guess Nick won. Okay, but... That's what happened. <laughs> and that's not really what I'm looking for in a game that takes, you know, about two hours or so to play from what we saw in those two games. Um, now, I'm pretty sure we set the, the deck of cards up right because we were playing this on Tabletop Simulator, which had an automatic script to create the deck of cards. So I'm trusting in that overall. Um, now, I'd like to move on to some other points that I have about the game. And uh, one of them is, for me, I was constantly tripping up on the rules to this game, and it made me feel really dumb. I mean, I essentially am a professional board game player these days to a certain extent, you know, because I film my playthroughs and whatnot. And um, I feel like I'm generally pretty good at remembering rules. But in Pax Pamir, I was constantly missing little rules here and little rules there. Like, oh, that's right, you can spend a move action to move spies from one card to another. Or the primary rule I kept forgetting was the fact that whenever you play a card that is associated with a region that somebody else's controls, then you have to pay that person coins equal to the number of their tokens in that region that they control. So that is kind of a neat idea. So it means if you put a lot of your tribe tokens down, then people have to pay you to kind of influence that region. But we kept missing this rule. And in fact, on that last turn of the game, in the, the game I played last night, the reason I didn't play a card, which would have ended up winning me the game, surprisingly, was because I forgot about that rule. And I was uh, saving my money to uh, be able to do what seemed to be a powerful action on the next turn, not realizing when I played that card, I would have had to pay a money to an opponent, which means I wouldn't have enough money to do the plan that I had. So if I had remembered that rule, then I would have played the card 100%, and then I would have won and probably not really felt much ownership in that win. So that's a little bit strange as well. Um, another thing that we noticed is that it's surprisingly hard to change allegiances. Uh, in this game, it seems like it's kind of all about being on the right side at the right moment. And in the game we played last night, um, I think two out of the four players never changed allegiances once. Um, and the, another person switched over kind of early and stayed where they were at. And that wasn't necessarily because we were deciding not to change allegiances. It's because it seemed really hard to change allegiances in this game. Um, most of the cards that you buy are neutral, which means they are not associated with any of the three uh, different countries. And um, it seemed like the strong uh, countries, whenever a single one of those cards came out, it got snapped up really quickly because we kept having scorings happen on dominance. And when a scoring happens on dominance, then the player with the most things of that type is going to get the most points. So one of those things is the color of the card. And then there are also gifts, which you can get from, uh, or I guess um, uh, prizes that you can get by assassinating other people's stuff. And 
I think that this largely comes down to us being new-ish to the game, like we were far from experts, and there were probably good moves that could have made us a little bit more flexible in moments when we wanted to be flexible, but we weren't really seeing them. And, you know, we're all pretty experienced board gamers in general. Uh, everyone around the table has played hundreds and hundreds of games and have been playing board games, uh, like, weekly for well over a decade. So um, I have, I guess, a lot more that I could say, like, nitty-gritty type things, but I think I should probably start wrapping this up by saying that I, I've really been fascinated by Pax Pamir in my two plays. I mean, I played it a second time because I wanted to see how it would work again. I was also curious to see how it would play in a four-player game instead of a three-player game. Well, I will say that I think I liked it more at the four-player game. It seemed like there was a little bit more going on, a little bit more jockeying, and a little more opportunities to do things like um, betray your opponents and uh, uh, bribe their different stuff and that kind of thing. Um, but I will say that this game, for me, was a bit of an analysis paralysis uh, um, a pitfall. Um, I found myself on each one of my turns just spinning all the wheels in my head, trying to figure out what I can do to do this, to do that. Like, well, I could do this and this, but then oh, that helps them a little bit more than me. And then, okay, well, maybe I'll do this and that. Oh, maybe if I do this or that other thing. And I kept doing this over and over again. And there were a couple turns where I just could not find anything good to do with my turn. Um, it wasn't like uh, a kind of game like Maracaibo, where it's like, there's so many good things to do which awesome thing do I take? In this game, it seemed for me, again, a novice at Pax Pamir, that many turns was just like, what can I do that is good? And I had many turns where I felt like I could not do much that was good, and you don't actually take that many turns in the game. Uh, and it wasn't just me. Um, everyone around the table was taking very slow turns, and some of these people are not known for analysis paralysis. Uh, a couple of the players I was with take some of the fastest turns of anyone I know of in board gaming, and there were still some really slow ones. So, yeah, I think I'm not really sold on Pax Pamir 2nd Edition at this point. Um, I could see myself playing this game again if I was in a situation where somebody else really wanted to try it. it in that case, I'd say, okay, let's give it a shot because it is kind of fascinating to see how everything works uh, together in the game. But I'm not going to be excited to play it in that moment. I'll be more just like curious to see, oh, I wonder what's going to happen this time. I wonder if I'll be the one who randomly wins. Or um, <laughs> uh, if we're in a situation where somebody's just kind of interested in it, I'll probably push to play something else. Um, I don't own a copy of this game, but I do know that at least one person in my gaming group does. So it would not surprise me if at some point I teach and play the game again once we're actually allowed to play games with each other um, in person. But um, that's kind of where I land with Pax Pamir. And once again, um, this, uh, my opinion is essentially exactly same to two uh, other people out of the four people around the table. So three out of the four of us uh, went away from it, like not regretting having played it, but not being really enthused with it overall. And it's just, I guess, not really the game for us. Okay, let's now move on to the next game, which is Rosetta, The Lost Language. Now, this was sent over to me by the publisher a couple of weeks ago for coverage in the Impressions vlog, and I actually told them that I didn't think I would get to it for a few months until I played with other people, but fortunately, I then realized that you can play this pretty easily over video chat. Uh, so with that in mind, let's now talk about how this game plays. Now, it is a fully cooperative experience where one player is uh, the author, I think is what they're called, and they are the Rosetta Stone for a pictographic uh, alien language, essentially. Um, now, the way the game works mechanically is that author is going to draw a location card as well as a um, an image of the other language, the alien language. Then what they're going to do is they have to come up with an interpretation of what that 
um, icon essentially means pictographically, and they have to be inspired in some way by the picture that they see. After that, uh, they need to try and get everyone else around the table to figure out what the meaning of that is based off of what they said. So they can uh, write the meaning down and put it face down so everybody knows they're not cheating. And then the uh, other players around the table are just going to essentially guess what it is in front of them, or just various types of guesses. Um, they're not necessarily saying uh, right from the get-go exactly what they think it is, but they are looking for more clues to interpret. The way that works is you might have a situation uh, where you have a uh, thing out there, well, like the image over there actually you see, where the um, the ending meaning was scuba diver, I believe, and then um, the people around the table asked things like fish or fin or tail or that kind of thing. Um, now, they might not have thought that this meant um, tail, for instance, but if you ask that, then the author is going to draw in the same language, in the same style, an interpretation of the word that was asked. So if, if uh, everybody else asked tail, then the author would draw what tail looks like, and hopefully you are close enough so that everyone else around the table can be like, aha, I recognize this part of that shape in the main thing. Now we can use that as a clue to decipher the main overall meaning. Um, that is uh, a big part of how we actually won the uh, example that, uh, that I'm showing over there, uh, because it was a scuba diver and we asked about a fisherman, which was close. So then um, the next drawing showed a similar kind of form, but without the circle on the head, and then a similar kind of creature with a similar icon for the tail. Um, we couldn't figure out why the circle wasn't there yet, and we asked about fish. I think we might have asked about sushi at 1.2, and more of these cards came out until we ended up realizing, aha, the tail is associated with a fish and with a scuba diver. Now, technically, the real reason that we uh, figured out uh, this one in this example is because at a certain point, as you're giving guesses, you get an ability. Uh, now, there are a bunch of abilities in this game, and you can choose uh, from a couple of them each time you play, and this one let the author actually vocalize a clue, and the clue was pressurized, and that that really got it for us. We were like, okay, we figured it out. It's a scuba diver. We got it, and it felt great. Uh, that being said, we played three games of this back-to-back, -back, um, and I was the author for two of these, and we got one of them and didn't get the other one, but it didn't seem quite as cohesive in those uh, those other games. The scuba diver game went really well. It's like, okay, this is how the game is supposed to work. Um, now, unfortunately, um, when you play this over video chat, it kind of has to be the person who owns the game that is the author. I think there are probably ways you can get around this using other applications for public drawing and whatnot. We haven't tried that yet, and I wouldn't mind trying it in the future. But um, this experience of trying to work together collaboratively with everybody else to try and figure out what this other person meant with the icon was fascinating. I think it worked really well, um, but the only real catch for the game is that there is a lot of pressure on the author right at the very start. Um, you deal out the cards, and then you sit there, and you're trying to come up with what this means, and you want it to make sense. It needs to be inspired in some way by the image that you uh, have on that card, but it can't be anything on that image. And you you want it to make sense. You know, like with the scuba diver example, there was a circle over kind of um, several hashes that could turn into uh, arms and feet, for instance. But some of the other ones, at least when I was a clue giver, I just really struggled to come up with a really good idea, and the entire play experience is uh, um, uh, teetering on whether or not you came up with a good idea that can be sleuthed out by all of these various clues. So it was a really fun game to play while I was in the middle of it, um, but again, pretty stressful when I was the author, and I think that's probably partly because I was new to the experience, and, and I don't see this as a negative on the game. This is definitely not a flaw with the game overall. Um, it's just... 
It's just a thing that you should know about. Like some games where it's one person giving clues to everyone else are uh, relatively simple overall, like Wavelength. I never feel too much stress when I'm playing Wavelength, whereas other games like Codenames, I can sometimes feel a lot of stress in trying to come up with the perfect clue to get people on my team to guess what those are. And in this case, Rosetta was closer to the Codename side of things, but just there at the beginning. Because once you're in the middle of it, um, you actually, you need to be an artist. And that was also a strange and compelling thing, which was also a little bit stressful in that, you know, they the people around the table would give you a clue that they want you to translate. And you need to look at the image that you decided a meaning for. You need to interpret how this new thing would be drawn in this other way and in such a way so that it will also give clues to your people, the people around the table, so they could figure it out. Um, so again, kind of stressful, but also really fascinating from a um, just thinky perspective. Like this game felt familiar um, in certain ways to other uh, fully cooperative deduction style games while feeling completely fresh and different in the way it squeezed my brain in uh, certain ways to come up with these definitions and to come up with these new images to essentially build out a fake language that will be thrown away at the end of every single play. Um, I will say that we played three times in a row and each game took maybe about 15 minutes. So it's not a terribly long game overall. And I think in general, I'm impressed. Uh, this is a game that I certainly see myself playing again in the future. Um, I'm not sure if we will keep doing it over video chat or maybe if we'll just wait until we, uh, play games together more often in the future, but this is the one I think that's going to be sticking around in my collection for a while, especially considering it's a small box with a nice little magnetic lid, so it doesn't take up a lot of shelf space. Uh, I think it takes up just enough space for what it is, and yeah, I'm really glad I got to play it. All right, it's now time for the third and final game I'll be discussing today, and that one is The King's Dilemma. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that I am kind of intimidated to talk about this game in this uh, setting. Uh, I've actually taken notes over here because I don't want to forget anything because um, I have a lot to say because I played a lot of this game. Uh, now, this is a campaign-style game, and for us, we played 17 overall games over the course of, I believe, seven different sessions. Um, now, I'll say right now that this is a campaign game with the potential for lots of spoilers. Like I could spoil a lot of things right now, but I am not going to do that. Um, if I do say anything that feels even remotely spoilery, then I will say it first, and I will try to keep any of that type of stuff to the very end, so you will have a warning, and you can stop uh, watching if you want to at that point. Um, so, with this game, you're going to have a bunch of people around the table, and for us, we played the maximum player count, which is five players, and they are all the head of households for um, all the ruling families, essentially, in a medieval-ish uh, kingdom in a uh, fantasy sort of world. Um, now, mechanically, in this game, you are working through a variety of dilemmas, but actually, before I talk about that, I do want to mention that we did play this on uh, Tabletop Simulator. Um, I think at this point, the mod has actually been removed because the publisher requested it to go away. Maybe it's back again, I'm not sure. But um, we started playing before that and we had saved it to our systems so we could keep playing it. Um, now I will say that we were going to play a full campaign of this in real life with the exact same five people. Um, the first day we were going to meet was actually scheduled and everything, and it happened to be essentially the first day of shelter-in-place lockdown. So it was an awful time to try and start a campaign. And once we were like a month and a half into the pause, uh, we realized that we could play it on Tabletop Simulator, so we got all the same people together. So um, we were going to do this in real life, but we were kind of forced to do it online. Um, now. In this game, you are going to be going through a series of dilemmas, and you, as the head of the household, are going to essentially 
use your influence, your power, effectively, to try and uh, affect what's going to happen. Mechanically, you, uh, one card is going to be drawn at the beginning of each of the rounds in the game, and it will have a paragraph of text on it, and then it will say I or nay, based off of the decision that's happening. Uh, for example, let's say the text says, um, you're at war with the, the people to the south, um, should we send more troops down there, yes or no? Uh, if you say I, then in this case, you can see right there on the card, it'll say that our influence is going to go up by some unknown amount, but our money is going to go down because it's expensive to send troops around. On the other hand, if we say, nay, we don't want to send the troops, then maybe the morale of the nation will actually go down because it means it's telegraphing that maybe we're losing the war or something like that. Now, that's just an example I completely made up, but the card shows you those things with icons. Like, is it going to be positive money or negative money? Positive morale or negative morale? Now, you don't know how much, and so at this point, players will then essentially use their power to try and influence what's going to happen. Um, power is a resource in tokens behind your little player shield, and if you want I to happen, then you push a little I card forward and you put a certain amount of power on top of it, and then the next person makes a decision. Now, you can go with I, nay, or you could pass, and if you pass, then... Um, there are a few things that could happen, but the simple uh, version is that once the round is over, you and everyone else who passed are going to split the power that's in the middle of a pot, which is the remainder power from the previous dilemma. At the end of the dilemma, all the power on the eyes or nays, uh, or at least on the side that won, will go into the middle, which will then be split up for the next one. So that means if there is a really contentious dilemma where a whole bunch of power is being thrown out onto these cards and then uh, it resolves and there's like 12 power used, then that all goes into the middle, at least for the side that won, and then in the next round, people are more motivated to pass to try and get their hands on that power. On the opposite side, maybe there is a dilemma that isn't that impactful, nobody really cares, and most people pass and one power goes into the middle. Well on the next dilemma, you don't really feel motivated to pass because you're not really going to be getting much, so maybe you'll spend your power to actually influence things. Uh, now, when these different uh, things go up and down, you actually track them on a track in the middle of the board, and I'm trying to be very uh, high-level with the mechanics of this game, but um, effectively, that's that's just how the game plays. After that dilemma, you draw another one, and the tracks are going to go up and down. You draw another one, the tracks are going to go up and down. Uh, now, one key thing to mention here is that another thing that shows up on these cards is an icon to say a positive or negative sticker. Now, these stickers, I think, are maybe called Chronicles, and um, if you are the person who put in the most power for the side that wins and there's a sticker involved, then you are going to gain that sticker. You put the sticker out on the board and you literally sign your name on it. Now, if it's a positive sticker, then that is going to help you out in a variety of ways that I'm not going to go into, and if it's a negative sticker, then it will hurt you in the future, and thematically, the idea of this is the people remember that awesome thing you did, or the people remember that awful thing that you just did, and it will hurt the amount of power that you have going into future games. Um, now, when you're playing through this game, you're going to go until a certain condition happens. Uh, either uh, too much positive things are happening, too many negative things are happening, or just a number of dilemmas happen, which causes the king to die of old age. Uh, when that happens, everybody is going to score, and everyone has a hidden agenda that they uh, draft at the beginning of the round, and this will dictate what they are hoping for. Um, so these cards show you the tracks in the middle of the table, and maybe you are a moderate, and that means you want all the tokens to be as close to the center as you can, and the more tokens that are in that center band uh, means the more um, oomph you'll get, I don't know, laurels, <laughs> points, I guess, uh, in order to try and win the game. Uh, conversely, you might be the extremist that just cares about the difference between the highest token and the lowest token, and that will actually be your score. Um, there are a couple other ways for you to get points. In fact, there are some kind of 
uh, objectives that you can get with those positive stickers I mentioned, which give you more avenues to get points, which again, I'm not going to be going into at this point. Um, now, when you do this, the person with the most points is going to get a certain amount of stuff, depending on how the game ended. Um, if the game was super unstable, then they might get crave points, which are like little black points. And if the game ended with um, too much stability, then the opposite happens with, with prestige. Now, the rules tell you that both crave and prestige are good. And that's kind of all they say. And that's all I'm going to say about it for the moment, because I am avoiding spoilers. Um, after that, you just kind of package everything up and then you can set it all up and play the game again. And as you're going through the game, you are essentially working your way through six different stories. Um, as you uh, evaluate these dilemmas, uh, not only will stickers come out, but you will pull out these little envelopes, which add new dilemmas into the deck. And based off of the decisions that you make, certain envelopes will be pulled out instead of others. So that means that decision to do this thing instead of that thing might um, put a new set of things into the mix. Um, maybe you did an awful thing in this moment and then this envelope comes out and we're like, oh no, we went with the awful thing and now a whole envelope of ramifications of the awful thing that we did are now in the system and we're going to have to deal with that when they come out. And from a campaign perspective, that was really cool overall. And you're just going to keep playing this game over and over again. And each one of our games lasted um, probably on average about 45 minutes. Uh, we had uh, one that maybe went to an hour and a half for reasons that I won't say. And we had another one that literally ended with one dilemma. So it was like a 10 minute game. So we obviously just reset and played the game again. So on most of these nights, we played uh, two games. A couple nights, we played uh, three games uh, in a row over the course of like a two and a half hour uh, period. So that's kind of the mechanics of the game. And now let's start talking about what it's like. And man, it's really hard to talk about this without spoiling. So from a non-spoiler perspective, I will say that I am happy that I played the campaign. I had a lot of fun while I was playing it, and I also had a lot of not fun while I was playing it. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But overall, I am happy that I got to experience this. Um, this was a fascinating setting and a fascinating experience of negotiating with uh, my opponents around the table because it's a competitive legacy campaign-esque kind of game. And there were some really cool high moments and low moments. There was laughter, and there were a couple moments where people, uh, including me at one point, got legitimately upset, like kind of angry at the situation uh, for reasons that I'm not really going to go into into specifics. But um, that's the high level thing that I say. And then the next thing that I'll say with uh, perhaps a little bit more spoilers is that um, you can't take this game seriously. Uh, it's it has all these gamey feelings to it. You have your own personal agendas. You've got all these hidden achievements that you're trying to make happen. You have these um, uh, goals to make the tokens go up and down. But if you take this game too seriously, you're just going to get upset and not have fun. Uh, realistically, this kind of felt like a choose-your-own-adventure group experience that happened to be competitive and also happened to have points, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit strange overall. Like, from a story perspective, some of the twists and turns were really interesting, quite fascinating, and oftentimes devastating. Like, there were a couple moments where a certain thing went a certain way, and I was like, I can't believe we let that happen. And then the game's like, cool, now here's like permanent ramifications of that awful thing that you did. And, um, and it's just there for, you know, the, the for a long time. Anyway, uh, so these aspects are really neat. But the frustration for me came in, in that I had a really hard time ungaming myself from this game. Like I said, there are hidden objectives, and I was really focused on those. Like they felt kind of engine-y. Like uh, if you do it, then you get a certain amount of stuff at the beginning of each game. And I knew we would only play so many games. So the gamer in my head said, let's try to smash out these objectives as soon as we can. And 
I had I got really frustrated trying to make those objectives happen over everything else, and I feel like I lost entire games um, mentally. Like like not like I lost the game from a points perspective, but like they almost didn't happen because I was so focused on my objectives and then ended up missing them and then getting so frustrated that I just spent 45 minutes doing sort of nothing, trying to lean into certain things. Again, I'm trying not to spoil it, that I got really upset um, on at least one occasion. And, uh, and you know, I, I took it a little too far. I mean, I wasn't like yelling or anything like that, but I could tell. I was like, I told my friends, I was like, I'm taking this too seriously. I apologize, but I'm just like a little bit steamed at the moment. Um, and it just seemed like there was kind of like this fall behind loser situation happening with me as well. Um, uh, the, the reason for that is because you get these little uh, objectives when you put down lots of stickers. And uh, a tiny spoiler, not really, is that my hidden goal, one of my hidden goals involved me needing those positive stickers. So I found myself kept tr uh, trying to win the dilemmas that would give positive stickers only to be outbid by somebody else who already had several positive stickers. And because they had several positive stickers, they started with more currency and they also had more objective tokens, which gave them the opportunity to make more points, which meant they were more likely to win, which would give them more points and more currency to get more stickers out. And I just got so frustrated where like there would be one player with like five or six stickers, positive stickers, and I would have one and then it would just go away. And that was actually when I think I lost my temper was I was just like, I'm trying so hard to desperately do my goals and I'm trying so hard and it just keeps backfiring. And I would just like throw all of my power in to try and get that sticker. And then like two dilemmas later, I have no power. And then somebody else across the table gets a white sticker for like one power. And I'm just like, why do I keep getting hosed? And I just, I, I fell into a, a situation that wasn't a very fun situation to be in. Now, the uh, positive end to the story is that by about the sixth game or so, I finally achieved my objectives, maybe the seventh game. And I kind of learned to start just, to just like let go and start loving the game to a certain extent, or at least the experience and to stop caring so much about winning and losing. And I had a lot of fun with the second half of the campaign because I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to not worry about my my things at all. Maybe I'll try a little bit, but let's just see what happens. Let's see. Let's make the story go where I think I kind of want it to go and not try to get so emotionally attached. And to a certain extent, being emotionally attached is cool, like that a game can evoke that. I mentioned earlier in the PAX Premier section that a problem that I had was that the winners and losers in those games did not really feel like emotionally attached to that win or that loss. And I definitely had a lot of emotions when I was playing uh, King's Dilemma. But but again, a lot of frustration also with things like Runaway Leader and whatnot. Now, a big thing that um, I think was a miss on the side of the game, um, and this is not a spoiler, it's the fact that it tells you if there are positive or negative stickers on the dilemmas themselves. I think this is the single biggest issue that I had with the game because we spent so much time as gamers just desperately trying to get those positive stickers because they were kind of like engine building and trying to avoid the negative stickers because they were kind of like anti-engine building. Um, I really feel like those should have been hidden. I feel like you read the text and if you feel like, oh, this is a really impactful thing, then maybe this one has a sticker. Like, I wish that was the way they did it. So, like, if the decision feels really powerful, you flip it over and it does or it doesn't, you're not really sure. And I think that would have pulled us into the experience of the dilemmas more than just gamifying them and being like, 
white stickers are good. I should get more white stickers. That person over there has a lot of power. They're going to keep throwing the power in to get more white stickers. More white stickers give them more power. So the next game, they can throw more power down to get more white stickers, um, which, again, was kind of frustrating. Um, okay, let's now take a look here. Okay, so the next thing I'd like to say, which is starting to get slightly spoilery, is that there are six stories in the game, and they ended anticlimactically um, uh, for us. Uh, it, it, many of them ended surprisingly. Like, not like, oh, that ending wasn't good. It was more just like, oh, it's over? Oh, I guess that story's over. <laughs> All right, that, that, I didn't expect it to end on that moment. I think only one out of the six was everybody in agreement that the story was about to end. So that was a, a little bit strange. I feel like maybe that could have been honed out a little bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, the last thing that I think I want to say before I go into full-on spoiler territory is that uh, again, going back to the attachment to the game and, and the emotions in the game, uh, I never won the game. We played 17 games over the course of seven uh, play sessions, and I did not win a single one of those, which was weird, <laughs> honestly. Like, I started getting salty once we were like seven, eight, nine games in, and then I decided to just not care anymore. And since I kind of stopped caring, I also wasn't really in a position to win. And uh, one player won way more than the rest of us, and guess what? That was the player with the most white stickers, which gave them the objective tokens, the objectives, which gave them more opportunities to get points, which means they had more opportunities to win the game. Uh, now, interestingly enough, I still was in the running because I kept getting second place. <laughs> I, I went through and counted it. Out of the 17 games, I came in second place seven times. Um, and you get quite a bit of points for second place. In fact, almost as much as first place. So that was another reason why I kind of learned to stop caring as much because I was still getting a lot of points and I still seemed to have a lot of stuff overall. Um, so that was definitely a strange situation that you can just play a game that many times and never win. And uh, and it was definitely part of the reason why I got frustrated and why I forced myself to stop being frustrated because it was either that or just stop playing the campaign. And I wanted to keep playing the campaign. Um, all right, let's now talk about the end of the game. And this is going to be full-blown spoiler territory. So if you uh, have been avoiding it to this point, then uh, definitely stop listening now. Uh, now, at the start of the game, at the start of the campaign, it tells you that you get prestige and crave. They're the white and um, brown, I think, points. And it says they're both points and they're kind of conditional. You don't know what that condition is, but crave is more of like a selfish act kind of points and prestige is more like a, a you know, altruistic kind of points in the game. And that's all it tells you. Um, so while we were playing through the campaign, I ended up being the prestige leader for pretty much the entire campaign. Even though I kept losing, I uh, kept coming in second place uh, for the most part, I had tons of prestige. Now for reasons, Everybody knows how much prestige everybody else has, but nobody knows how much crave everybody else has. And um, so once we got to the very end of the campaign, um, there is effectively this grand finale, which opens up. In fact, that 17th game I mentioned, it was the grand finale. It almost doesn't even count toward the other ones. And it is this surprisingly complex, super convoluted game of chicken where suddenly you have, you've been playing this campaign all along where you're doing some negotiation, trading coins back and forth and whatnot. And suddenly it throws you into a situation where it tells you like, feel free to like go into other rooms and discuss and wheel and deal and connive and everything into this uh, super cutthroat version of like diplomacy almost, not mechanically with a map, but like in the uh, negotiations uh, for trying to take the win on an entire campaign. And it was such a whiplash moment. Like it seemed like such a different approach that we actually decided not to do any of that wheeling and dealing. We did a tiny bit of discussion, but we kind of just went with 
our gut, we kind of shot from the hip with the very end, uh, which felt a little bit strange. And when the dust settled, the uh, player who all through the campaign won by far the most games and who had the most um, stickers, which meant they had the most power, well, they won. And uh, there were ways that that player could have not won. Um, we kind of mathed it out. We were talking about it probably an hour after the campaign was over. Um, there was a way that I actually could have won. Um, a lot of things would have had to happen. I would have had to do this and this, and they would have had to do that, and they would have had to do the other thing. But there was a path to victory for me, you know, maybe like a 5% path. And uh, you, the same could be said for a lot of the players. But that person who was kind of doing so well or seeming to do so well all through the campaign, um, they ended the game with the second most prestige and the second most crave, and both ended up being worth points. Um, now, I do want to note that that player who won, they felt like they weren't winning throughout the campaign. Uh, their prestige level was relatively low for much of the campaign, but they kept building up Crave. But also, we had reason to think that Crave wasn't really going to be worth many points, but then we were all wrong and Crave was totally worth points at the end of the game. So it was... Again, a strange experience where the journey was way more interesting than the end. Like, this was definitely all about the journey and not the end. Um, the dust settled, that person won, and we didn't necessarily feel like, I don't know, I felt like they won because they had a, a, a rich-get-richer kind of engine going. Like, they played very well. I don't blame them at all, but they definitely got a lot of resources because of this uh, uh, kind of runaway leader-ish type of thing. But at the same time, again, that player didn't really feel like they were winning for much of the campaign. So it's very strange from an emotional perspective. Um, so once again, circling back to where I, something I said a long time ago, I'm glad that I played it. And I think all of us are glad that we played it. But I can't help but wish that there was just a little bit less going on, that it just focused in on the story more because the stories are what was interesting. The forked paths that happened in the stories were what was interesting about this game. And the gaminess of the game actually felt like a detractor to me overall. So um, at this point, I think I am full on rambling and uh, I've spoiled a bunch of stuff here at the end. So um, I hope this was interesting to some people, especially the people who maybe stopped before I got to the spoiler section. But um, yeah, that is The King's Dilemma. We played it, we played it a lot. And it's a big reason why I actually haven't been doing many of these impressions vlogs over the last few weeks because I've been just playing so much of The King's Dilemma. So yeah, that is going to wrap up that game and also this vlog. Um, those were the three new games that I played over the course of the last, I don't know, like four or five weeks, really. Um, and Pax Mimir just happened recently, so I'm not sure how many new games I will be playing soon, although my schedule has opened up significantly now that we are done with the King's Dilemma campaign. Uh, yeah, I think that is going to bring this vlog to a close.